Our passage today is from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This passage is known as the, uh, the triumphal entry. This passage begins the narrative in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life of his last week in Jerusalem before the crucifixion and then uh, resurrection. So I would invite you to stand with me. We will read this uh, scripture out loud together. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Spirit, for your word, and we ask that you would speak clearly to us today. Say to us the things that we need to hear. Clear from our minds any distractions, any clutter that would keep us from hearing and obeying. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know this passage. If you are a newer Christian, this may be a new passage to you. If you are not a Christian or didn't grow up in a church environment, this passage might just seem weird to you. There are strange things happening here. Coats being thrown on the ground. Jesus kind of stealing sort of a donkey. It's just a strange passage here. So what I want to try to do today is is come at it with a a fresh perspective to help us to see the importance of this passage. I want to ask this morning, why does the triumphal entry matter? All four gospel accounts of Jesus' life include the triumphal entry. That's rare. That doesn't happen all that often in the four gospel accounts. You sometimes get one angle or two angles or three angles at the same event, but rarely do all four writers come at one event and give their perspective on it. That happens with the triumphal entry. Clearly, they think this story matters. It's normal, I think, for us uh, who are Christians to kind of treat Jesus' life as the prelude to the good stuff. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection that matter most 
to us, and so we kind of can skip over the Jesus' life stuff. Crucifixion and the resurrection are what matter, and that's true to a point. There is no Christianity, there is no Christian faith outside of the death and resurrection. The cross and the empty tomb are the location for God's salvation and for God's victory. But does that mean that everything that comes before the cross is simply the warm-up act? Let's ask the question a different way. What would change about your faith if there had been no triumphal entry? What would be different about your Christian faith if there had been no triumphal entry as is recorded in this passage? Most of us, I would guess, would have a hard time answering that question. We would have a hard time coming up with anything that would be all that different about our faith had this story not been recorded. The point I want to make this morning is that when we look at the triumphal entry, we're not simply seeing a prelude to the crucifixion. Rather, triumphal entry reveals God's total victory The triumphal entry provokes the church to worship. And the triumphal entry challenges our allegiance to Jesus. You can see how I kind of snuck my three points in there. Did you catch that? The triumphal entry reveals God's total victory, provokes the church to worship, and challenges our allegiance to Jesus. You can imagine concentric circles beginning with the universal scope of God's resurrection, God's victory, then narrowing to the church, and then finally centering on our individual lives. And as we go through these, you'll see these concentric circles up there. If it helps you, great. If it's a distraction, you can ignore it. It's how my mind works. Again, if you are a new Christian or if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, let's just acknowledge it's a strange-sounding story, but please don't write it off from the get-go as one of those weird Bible stories with no contemporary relevance. The gospel writers include this because it matters. They're intentional about it because there is much for us to learn about the very foundations of Christian Faith. If you are a Christian, have been for a long time, and struggle to answer the why does this story matter to my faith question, then please pay attention because it does. So we begin with that biggest perspective. The triumphal entry reveals God's total victory. It's true that the cross that the crucifixion is the center of our faith. Without Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection, there is no Christianity. You and I, though, have the tendency to make ourselves the focus of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We take what God did on the cross through Jesus and we make ourselves the focus, what he did for me. The triumphal entry doesn't allow us to do that. It directs our attention beyond ourselves to the immensity of God's sacrifice and salvation. To see this, let's start by looking at Jesus' actions in this passage, beginning with the first verse. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus was not from Jerusalem. There's a little map, I think, on the back of your bulletin that focuses in on 
where our passage takes place. Jesus is not from this area. This is Judea. This is the capital city, Jerusalem. Jesus is from north, from the region of Galilee. Most of the gospel accounts take place in the region of Galilee, where Jesus was from, where most of his disciples were from. They spoke with Galilean accents. People in that day would have very quickly been able to know where Jesus and his disciples were from simply by listening to how they spoke. Knew they were from Galilee. What is he doing in Jerusalem? In chapter 16, verse 21 of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. There's a turning point in Matthew's Gospel, as there is in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus, while still in Galilee, says, We're going south. We're going to Jerusalem, and there's a purpose, and there's an intentionality behind it. They've been making their way purposefully to Jerusalem, and now our passage records their arrival. Matthew makes us see clearly that there are crowds in the city that day. He uses that word crowds a few times in our passage. He wants us to get a sense of the busyness of the hubbub of the city, and that's not just the normal city hubbub that you and I are used to. They arrive at Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover festival. It's a pilgrimage festival. It's one of the festivals for the Jewish people when they would have gathered from all over the region in Jerusalem to remember Passover. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God had told them to kill a lamb and to put the blood over the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over their homes, leading eventually to their rescue from slavery. They gather as pilgrims, singing songs about God's rescue from the Psalter, including our call to worship this morning, Psalm 118. They were remembering what God had done for them generations ago, and they were looking forward, because they were marching, they were pilgrimaging to an occupied city where Rome was in control, where Herod was the puppet king, where the temple had been desecrated. They were singing songs that reminded them of what God had done and what God one day would do. So Jesus is arriving intentionally to Jerusalem. He's been on his way for a while now, and he intentionally arrives at Passover. He arrives when the city is teeming, is pulsing with messianic expectation. That is, expectation about God's chosen rescuer and king, the one who would come to liberate the people. The passage continues, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. This is just strange. It's right? It's right? It's strange. Strange to us now, and it was strange to the disciples then. This is why Jesus preemptively says, when they ask you about this, just tell them the Lord needs it. And that was enough. It's odd to our ears, it was odd to theirs as well. What's going on here? 
Well, if Jesus had been this intentional thus far, coming to Jerusalem right at, at Passover, then he's probably still being intentional now. What does he mean for his actions to communicate to the gathering crowd? What is he expecting them to see in these actions? Well, he would descend from the Mount of Olives. Jesus' journey would have taken him up from Jericho, up through the, 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 the arid, hot desert, up the Mount of Olives, and then a small descent into the city of Jerusalem. It was a journey that many of the pilgrims knew very well. And this descent on a cult would have brought to mind a very familiar Old Testament passage from the prophet Zechariah. Chapter 14 of his book in the Old Testament, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name will be the only name. Remember, this crowd, these are a people living under occupation, exiles in their own land. They were living under Roman domination, and they looked to these words from Zechariah regularly for hope. One day, coming over the Mount of Olives into King David's city would come God's Messiah. On that day, their enemies would be defeated. On that day, they would be free. Matthew further makes this Old Testament connection for us when he explicitly explains why Jesus, for the first time recorded in any of the Gospels, rode instead of walked. This took place, Matthew says, again quoting from Zechariah, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah would come, but the Messiah would come humbly as a king, a king over the nations, a king over the whole earth, a victorious king, but a humble king. Jesus is doing all of this very intentionally, all of this very purposefully. And with these intentional and symbolic actions, the triumphal entry reveals the bigness of the victory to come. It's not simply that Jesus would die for our salvation. It's not simply that he would take onto himself our sins, that perfect and final fulfillment of the Passover lamb. It is these things, of course, but it's more. Jesus arrives at the scene of his eventual death as an anticipated king. He does much to further this idea by the way he comes in. He's coming as Israel's king. But rather than attacking Rome... His victory would be over evil and death itself. And rather than pouring out God's judgment on those who the crowd deemed worthy to be judged, Jesus would stand in for the judgment deserved by all of humanity. Let 
Christ's actions here make plain that God's victory was going to be much greater than anyone anticipated. But there's something else here, and it's got a lot of relevance for us today, I think. The triumphal entry also makes clear that belief in Jesus and faith in him are not private beliefs about personal spirituality. Christianity can never be about a faith option that works best for you and helps you make it through life. The claim embedded within the triumphal entry is that God was actually going to accomplish something in Jesus. This can sound arrogant. It has been at times. The church has been arrogant at times. But remember, Zechariah, look, your king is coming to you humble. The universal victory that God accomplished came through a humble king. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for manipulation. There's no room for oppression here. This means that those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus can never advance Jesus' cause through legislation, through violence, through division. Such manipulation will always distort Jesus' message because the message of God's universal victory cannot be separated from the messenger's humble entrance on a donkey and his humiliating death. On a cross. Do you see? The message of God's victory cannot be separated from the humility and humiliation of God's messenger. This is why evangelism must always be both bold proclamation of God's victory and humble demonstration of God's peaceable kingdom. Concentric circles narrow, and we see that the triumphal entry also provokes the church's worship. Let's shift now from Jesus' symbolic and intentional action to the crowd's reactions. Who's in the crowd that day? We have the 12 apostles that traveled with Jesus. There's a larger group of disciples, including the women who would be the last at his side on the cross. There are believers from the southern region of Judea who'd heard about Jesus. There were the usual spectators and hangers-on. There were the religious leaders who will soon be opposing him. There were also those in Jerusalem who heard the commotion and wondered, who is this? When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, Matthew says, asking, who is this? I think Matthew's doing something intentional here. He's bringing us back to the beginning of his gospel account in chapter 2, when the Magi, who had been following the stars, who had heard that a new king was being born, came to Jerusalem thinking that a king would be found in the capital city. Matthew records that when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Disturbed then in turmoil now. This is what Jesus does to people. He disturbs, creates turmoil. Jesus, it seems, cannot be ignored. 
And the crowd responds. And their response is informative to us, even though, as we'll see, they misread him. Despite their misreading of Jesus, their response is powerful, and it can be to us a mirror to evaluate our own response to Jesus. So a couple things for us to notice about the crowd. First, they noticed, they knew, that is, that they needed to be saved, and they expected a Savior. The crowd knew they needed to be saved, and they expected a Savior. Theologian Marcus Borg points out that, and this is fascinating, there was more than one triumphal entry happening that year in Jerusalem. He writes this, two processions entered Jerusalem for the festival of Passover that year. One happened every year while Judea was ruled by Roman governors, the most famous of whom was Pontius Pilate. The imperial cavalry and troops displaying the pomp and power of empire entered the city to reinforce the garrison permanently stationed there. See, typically the population of Jerusalem was about 40,000. It swelled sixfold during Passover to 240,000. Imagine if the population of Chicago increased sixfold. That's what it felt like in Jerusalem. And the Roman government got worried every single year. If a revolution was going to break out, it was at Passover. And so every single year they demonstrated they had their own triumphal entry into the city where all of their soldiers dressed to to impress, dressed to frighten, made their military power and might known. There was no question in the crowd's mind that day they needed a savior. They needed to be rescued. Rome's power was visible everywhere. In verse 9, the crowds then went ahead of him, and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Do you know what Hosanna means? Literally, it means save me. Over time, the the meaning among the Jewish community had shifted from save me to salvation has come. Save me had evolved to salvation has come. One theologian puts it this way. It used to be what you say when you fell off the diving board. Hosanna! Save me! on, but it came to be what you say when you see the lifeguard coming to save you. Hosanna. Salvation has come. Hosanna. Within that word, there is an implicit desire for salvation and an explicit thanksgiving for salvation. In that one word, that one cry on that day was the acknowledgement of the need to be saved and the thanksgiving that a Savior had come. Do you know your need for salvation? 
What sort of emotion for you would exist behind that word this morning or not? There were those in Jerusalem who had become very cozy with Rome. They had gotten used to the imperial presence. They had come to benefit from Roman oppression. They had forgotten their need for salvation. For them on that day, Jesus' triumphal entry did not elicit cries of Hosanna, but instead schemes and plots, consolidating their position and power. And the church forgets our own need for salvation. We too will fail to welcome the Messiah. That's not what's happening in this crowd because they knew their need for a Savior and so they welcomed Him. Hosanna! How did they welcome Him? Here's the second thing I want us to see about their response. First, they knew they needed to be saved. They expected a Savior. Secondly, they responded in worship when the Savior came. You might say, we got that. Hosanna, we sing those songs. Hosanna in the highest. Ah, yeah, we do that. We're good. We're cool. Our understanding, though, of worship might be a little too small. Just as Jesus engaged in symbolic actions to assert his kingship, the people engaged in symbolic actions to worship their coming king. Their worship was not predictable, and it certainly was not safe. By laying their coats on the ground before Jesus, they were recalling an Old Testament story where one king was still on the throne, but God had anointed a different king, and so the people took off their coats for the anointed king to walk on, thereby saying, this is our true king. That's the man sitting on the throne. This is our true king. So their worship, their laying down of their coats was a way of saying it doesn't matter who the governor is, Pontius Pilate. It doesn't matter who the king is, Herod. Here is the true king. By the way, most of these folks only had one cloak. They didn't have their worship cloak. Their get dirty in the mud cloak. They just had one. By laying down all that they had, the best that they had, they were showing, here is my true king. They worshipped. They worshipped their king. And then they waved palm branches. On the coins in that day, both the Roman and the Jewish coins, it would be very common to see palm branches. There were palm trees all over that region, and palm branches were a symbol of nationalism. The Romans used it. Some early Jewish revolutionaries 100 or 200 years before this story would have used it as well. The crowd chooses that symbol to wave before Jesus. They were applying a symbol of nationalism to Jesus. 
This would sort of be like playing hail to the chief for the entrance of someone who's not president. This would be like affixing the presidential seal to someone's podium who's not the president. It was a subversive, and it was a political act, and it was worship. Triumphal entry must provoke the church to worship. We too need a Savior. We too know the joy of being rescued, redeemed, and restored. The question is, will we worship? Will we sing loudly our songs of salvation? Will we move our bodies and lift our hands with the same joy we exhibit in other places? Will we lay down all we have, our cloak, everything, to magnify our Savior? Will we take the palm branches of our day, consumerism and nationalism and individualism and on and on, and wave They're powerless ideologies before our incomparable king. Will we worship? Will we play at worship? Or will we worship? And then finally, the scope narrows even more. The triumphal entry challenges our allegiance. Of course, the same worshiping crowd that day would later call for Jesus' execution, just a few days later. He didn't meet their expectations. In hindsight, this isn't all that surprising. Jesus planned on replacing the temple with his own body rather than defeating the Romans. Jesus claimed that everyone needed to be rescued, including the religious leaders. Jesus proclaimed a coming judgment from which no one would be exempt, from which everyone would need salvation. So when it becomes uh, clear that Christ's agenda does not match their own, they quickly shift their allegiances. How about us? Do you believe that Jesus' way is, in fact, the best way to live. Is following Jesus the most important thing to you? To continue worshiping Jesus, the crowd would have needed to pass through a time when it would appear that Jesus lost, that his way was failing. They would have had to remember Jesus' first teaching, a time when a similarly large crowd surrounded him. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a strange way to begin a movement. What a silly way to attract a crowd. Unless, of course, the source of the blessed life, of the good life, of the happy life, is not the circumstances of life, but Jesus himself. In order to experience Jesus as the source of the blessed life, the crowd would have to go through his death. Last weekend, I watched a documentary called Into the Great Silence, which none of you have seen or would want to see. It's it's the, 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 the documentary of a monk's in somewhere in Europe where they speak French, but not France. I don't remember. Anyways, these monks don't talk. They are quiet. They each have their own individual, and this is what they call them, cell. Their food is given to them through an opening in their cell where they spend their days in contemplation and in prayer. These monks sleep no more than three hours at any given time because the rhythm of prayer continues throughout the night and they do leave their cells then and gather in the chapel and chant their prayers and then return to their cells. I think, to most of us, this sounds like death. Sounds horrible. But on Sundays, they get to talk. Sunday, the Sabbath day, even for these monks, they get to talk. And what happens is that they become the most playful people you've ever seen. They go on walks through the beautiful countryside. When it's snowing in the Alps where they are, they go sledding. Monks who throughout the week seem so reserved and stoic and serious all of a sudden turn into playful little boys. The sound of their laughter is the sort of innocent and naive and beautiful laughter that is contagious. And you know what I'm talking about, right, when I say this? This way of living that to most of us would seem like death certainly would seem irrelevant, useless. What difference are they making in the world? It's revealed to be incredibly life-giving. When was the last time I thought, as I watched it, that I heard laughter like that? When was the last time I felt playfulness like that? As we move toward Good Friday in just five days, let me ask 
Where does your allegiance lie? We have a week before us still where we can consider that question honestly, truthfully. Where does your allegiance lie? Is it with the crucified Savior? Here's how you can know. If your allegiance is, in fact, to the crucified Savior above anyone and anything else, then to much of the world, your life will appear irrelevant. By the standards of our society, it will often appear as if you are losing to the confusion of those around you. Your discipleship to Jesus will regularly take you away from the broad road of the American dream and on to the narrow and inefficient way of Jesus. How can you know whether your allegiance is to Jesus alone? Your measures of success will be unbound from our country's obsession with money and more and me. Your measures excuse me, your resources, you'll shift to seeing them as a generous steward and not an entitled owner. Your discretionary spending will be limited by your generosity and not the other way around. You'll renounce the belief that a person can ever be a resource to be used for your own satisfaction or advancement. Is your allegiance to Jesus alone? Most of us, myself included, today would say no. If we were in the crowd that day, waving our palm branches and shouting Hosanna, it is most likely that by Good Friday we'd be calling for his death. Here is our great hope. It's not through our striving and our efforts that we prove our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Rather, it is through our repentance and our confession. We prove our allegiance not through lives perfectly lived, not through sin perfectly shunned, not through idolatry perfectly avoided. No, our allegiance to the crucified Savior comes through a sort of death of our own. We admit our failures. We admit our addictions, our wounds, our sins. We admit not timidly but boldly that we too betray Jesus. That we too have put him on trial, sentenced him to death. We too have been let down by his version of the blessed life. That we too have preferred a kingdom built on violence and vengeance and greed rather than on sacrifice and redemption. Miraculously and hopefully, it is here in our confession that our allegiance is formed. Not by proving your perfection or your worth. 
but in confessing your desperate need. Hosanna. 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 Look, your king is coming. Not just coming. Look, your king is coming, the text says, to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look, your king is coming to you. Come to him as his victory is revealed. Worship him with his salvation. Hosanna. Confess again and again and again your allegiance to the one whose death is the only source of true and eternal life. Amen? Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. We ask that you would receive our confession again today. That you would show us the scope of your victory on the cross. That in Jesus, God became king rescuing the world. Provoke our worship, our costly and sacrificial and wholehearted worship. Spirit of God, give us the courage, the boldness, the faith to hold nothing back from you, to lay down our best in front of you. And receive our confession again today that our allegiance to you over and above anyone and anything would grow and deepen so that as we mature, as we grow up in you, Lord Jesus, we can more and more say, I desire you more than anything else. I would sell all I have to possess the treasure hidden in the field. Pray for us as we move toward Good Friday. I pray, Spirit, if there are any places where we can confess, where we can reach out for forgiveness and healing during these days, that you would allow us to do this. That we would arrive on Good Friday and understand our place in the story, that we would not be the exceptional ones standing by your side, that most likely we would be the ones to calling for your crucifixion. We too would feel let down by your agenda. We too would need the very salvation that we were clamoring for earlier, but a salvation far greater and far deeper than we had imagined. So bring us into this story so that we could see our desperate and ongoing need for a Savior. And prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts 
for Easter morning, that we would worship in spirit and in truth our resurrected King. In Jesus' name we pray. singing that next week so that was just that was just to kind of get it in your bones a little bit because today on this side of easter we say hosanna save me save me and then sunday on that side of easter we say hosanna salvation has come salvation has come so you got to stand between these two hosannas this week The song we just said says that one of the things that God does is that he keeps me in the... You want to get out of the valley, right? Quick. One of the things that God will do for us is he will keep us in the valley as long as we need to be in the valley. Things grow in the valley. So let me say, if you're in the valley today, maybe it's okay to stay in the valley today. Maybe it is that God is doing something good and beautiful and hard. He's keeping you, though. He's keeping you. He's not forgotten about you. He's not become distracted. He's not tired. He's keeping you. He's keeping you. So Hosanna this week. Save me. Hosanna next week. Salvation has come. Amen? Come out on Friday, please, for our Good Friday service as we take our place in the story. And remember, now receive the benediction. It is common, uh, you can do this if you want to extend your hands during the benedictions, palms up as a way of receiving from God before being sent out to do his work. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, be majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 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 Go in peace. If you're going to be around to rehearse with the team, I think they'll be starting in about five minutes up front. Otherwise, we'll see you on Friday at 7.